Last week we went through the first four verses of this great epistle, and we saw the command to continually contend for the faith, and today we see the consequences of the sexually immoral and those whom did not believe in a salvific way. In today's sermon, Jude gives us three examples of the Lord's judgments, judgment upon the non-elect. First, on the unbelievers at the time of the Exodus. Secondly, on the fallen angels. And thirdly, upon Sodom and Gomorrah. This epistle also refutes the blasphemous, false teaching that Jesus allegedly does not call out homosexuality as sin, or that he allegedly does not speak against homosexuality. This week I will do, excuse me, yeah, this week, today, I will be doing an exposition on verses 5 through 7, verses 5, 6, and 7. So we'll be starting on verse 5, which is a reminder of God's punishment for those that are disobedient. Beginning with verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In verse 5 again, repeating verse 5, he said, Now I want to remind you, He's reminding them then, and he's reminding us now, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, just like he saved us out of a land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That Christ would save those out of Egypt as he did this church, but he also will destroy those whom he left behind. That's actually the whole counsel of the Word of God, the good news and the bad news. What is Jude reminding them uh, in verse 5a? No doubt he was reminding them of their instruction or teaching given prior, or perhaps prior to their water baptism. That they knew who Jesus was, they knew how he came, they knew why he came, and whom he came for, and that he's coming back. They understood the gospel, that Christ came and died for sinners. In particular, Christ died for God's elect. And he warns them then, again, and us now, of those that did not believe in a salvific way. Exactly who are those here that did not believe? In the Greek, those who do not believe are tos me pistuosantas. They are those who did not put their trust in Christ for salvation. They had an intellectual belief. They believed here, but the belief was not in their heart. They, did, they were not entrusted to Jesus as the Christ, uh, nor did they put their faith upon Christ. Uh, they are those who refused to be ruled by God's word. Uh, that's because they are those that God did not choose to believe. Why did they not believe? Well, it's because God chose them to not believe. Because God is sovereign. 
The same Jesus that is infinite in love, grace, and mercy towards his church and towards us is the same Jesus that is infinite in judgment, wrath, and vengeance towards the lost. And both people groups are mentioned right here in verse 5. Next in verse 6 is the infamous fallen angels. The fallen angels, which are millions, one-third of the angels fell, which is millions of angels, henceforth demons. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It says these fallen angels left their position of authority, hence they are now fallen angels. Calvin compared them to uh, military deserters. Military deserters receive a strict punishment for desertion. But no punishment is worse than what a lost sinner or a fallen angel will experience by being imprisoned in hell for an eternity. It gives us, us as a church so much more to be thankful for our salvation. Furthermore, these angels forsook God in leaving their assigned post. These angels had a fixed post, an assigned post that God had given them. And they betrayed God by leaving their post. I want to tell you a real story of something that happened in the 1980s. This was a historical time for the city of Los Angeles, which is, which is the city of angels. That's what it means in Spanish. I call it the city of fallen angels. And historically, Pope John Paul III visited the city of angels. So we as police officers, and, and at the time, Pope John Paul III, who we strongly disagree with, their doctrine, but he actually was probably one of the nicer popes, uh, he was there to visit Los Angeles with the First Lady, Mrs. Nancy Reagan. And my job was to stand guard as a fixed post, a fixed post in front of the Immaculate Conception. And there was another officer next to me, and that was his fixed post. Just like these angels had a fixed post. When you're given a fixed post to stand by while the helicopter is dropping the First Lady and the Pope from Rome into the city of Los Angeles... That's a pretty important position. And one police officer next to me left his fixed post so he can run and take a photograph. And, and I guess that's what you would call a selfie of the 1980s. And take a photograph of him in his uniform next to Pope John Paul III as they're being rushed into his Pope mobile, which is also flown in from Rome, and the First Lady Nancy Reagan. That officer lost his position. He's a fallen officer. He was demoted. He was reassigned to a less prestigious assignment. Now that's just a small scale of the importance of these angels that God ordained and gave a fixed post. And they fell from their posts. They forsake God. And God predestined them to fall Henceforth, they are now fallen angels, and they are demons working on behalf of Satan. These fallen angels that left their assigned posts now work on behalf of Satan, and now they belong to him. 
It is true that Satan is not omnipresent. He is not omnipresent. But the reason it almost seems as if he is in regards to temptation and sin and havoc all around us, you would think that Satan is omnipresent because how can sin and temptation be so powerful against us and in our lives? Well, that's simple. Because of the million, millions of the angels, the fallen angels, the demons are working on behalf of Satan. They are all over the place. They can be in this sanctuary. They are everywhere. Uh, I know we talked about this at prayer night a couple weeks ago. I, I don't understand. And the only reason why I'm talking about it because it's in the scriptures. But we were talking about it in prayer night. That I don't know why many Reformed churches and Calvinistic churches shy away from talking about Satan and his demons. But it's important because it is part of the text. It is true that God is sovereign over everything, including Satan and his demons. We even saw that in Job chapter 1, when Satan needed God's permission to go after Job and sift Job. God ordained that and gave Satan permission to go after his own Job. Chapter 3, paragraph 3 of our confession says this, By the decree of God... For the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Paragraph 4 of the same confession, chapter 3, says, These angels and the men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Close quote. But after studying demonology and angelology, I am convinced of the following. Though a born-again Christian cannot, and I repeat, cannot be demon-possessed, but I do believe that some believers irresponsibly give Satan and his demons a welcome access into their homes or their lives. Many well-attended Christians give Satan or his demons a place to live in their lives through what they see or through their ears as to what they listen to. Though we can never be sinless, we can never obtain the level of sinless perfection until, of course, we're in heaven, then we will be sinless. But as long as we're still alive, we will never be sinless. But listen, church, a lot of Calvinists will disagree with me on this. But I do believe that we can prevent some temptation, some temptation from turning into sin. I do believe we can resist temptation and prevent it from turning into sin in our lives by putting on the whole armor of God, which is literally to put on Christ, as the Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as mentioned in Ephesians 10, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And we can arm and protect ourselves with a theological frontlet. You say, what is a theological frontlet? A frontlet is mentioned only three times in the scriptures. And one is right here. Now, I'm not talking about the way the Roman, the Hollywood portrays the Roman Catholics and the priest will get a crucifix and he'll stick the crucifix between him and a demon or he'll stick a crucifix between him and sin. I'm not talking about that type of false frontlet. I'm talking about a biblical frontlet. Deuteronomy 11:18. 18. 
You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlids between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. I'm not saying that we need to literally block our vision with an object or with the Bible, which is the law and the gospel, the God's word in front of our eyes or upon our forehead to stop temptation from turning into sin. But I am saying that we as a church must be so enamored and so all-consumed in studying his word and rememberizing scriptures as the ladies are doing, that figuratively speaking, God's law and God's word is always front and center. It is always our frontlets. It's always on our forehead, always front and center. This is one way of applying the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, one of the pieces of armor in Ephesians 6, the Word of God as our frontlet. The fallen angels did not uh, remain in their own domain, so they fell. They left their fixed post. That is a perfect picture of so many alleged Christians or professing Christians, which means the same thing, that started off looking great, that started off looking like they were saved, but they ended in disaster. They didn't finish well. Spurgeon said this of this verse, If sin could drag an angel from the skies, it may well pluck a minister from the pulpit, a deacon from the communion table, a church member out of the midst of his brethren, it is only perseverance and holiness that is the token of eternal salvation. If we forsook the Lord and turn back to our former evil ways, it will be the evidence that we never really believed in Christ and that there was no true work of grace in our hearts. Close quote. Those are strong words from our, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. In verse 6b, Jude said... He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. God has allowed, as the scripture describes, Satan to be the god of this world. Satan is the god, little g, of this world system. But God has a leash strapped to Satan, so to speak. And by God's divine providence, at times he loosens his leash or his tether that he has upon Satan and his demons. I'm not saying that he has a literal leash or tether, but he is sovereign over them and can rule them in and tighten them up and loosen them and let them go and create even more havoc if he wills. For more on demons, please study Peter's description of demons in 2 Peter chapter 2. Next in verse 7, Jude lumps Satan and his demons along with the sexually immoral as they wait for that great day of judgment. And please, church, I'm not, I'm not beating you up here. I'm not preaching at you. This is the word of God. I'm not saying this personally to anybody here in this church. But there's some tough language here. 
And, and it is a problem in America today with a lot of our churches or so-called churches. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God, through Jude, boldly calls out sexual immorality, and specifically the homosexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Speaking of the aforementioned demons, today there is a demonic, and I mean a demonic influence, to hush up on or to normalize sexual sins. There's a big movement out there to normalize sexual sin. Oh, come on, brother. All sin is sin. They teach that false doctrine, which is not true. Since God told us in last week's sermon to contend for the faith in verse 3, which is an ongoing verb, a command, and next week we will be teaching on the denunciation of false teachers, then the following, uh, what I'm going to say here, is providentially and biblically appropriate. Regarding apostates, the largest Protestant denomination in the world, the Southern Baptist Church or Convention, is literally, and I mean literally, leading the way in this apostate movement. Their past president, J.D. Greer, and their newly elected president, Ed Linton, have both erroneously stated from their pulpits, and I quote, God whispers on sexual sins, close quote, claiming that God only whispers about sexual immorality, and they have either minimized or normalized homosexuality. But let's see what God says. He doesn't whisper. Let's see what God says about sexual sin in his own words. Including but not limited to, have we forgotten that God annihilated the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 18 through 19. He wasn't whispering. Have we forgotten that adultery is called a great sin? Not just sin, but a great sin. Genesis 20 verse 9. That adultery is called a quote-unquote great wickedness. Genesis 39.9. That adultery is worse than thievery. Proverbs 6, 30 through 32. That sexual immorality is an abomination unto the Lord throughout the scriptures. That fornication is wicked and they will not see heaven. 1 Corinthians 6.9. That homosexuality is a detestable act. Leviticus 20.13. That Christ will destroy professing Christians that are sexually immoral. Revelation 2, 12 through 16. That God killed 23,000 sexually immoral human beings in one day. 1 Corinthians 10, 8. Let's not forget about the millions that have died of AIDS. And the millions more that will die of AIDS. That God will make examples or specimens out of the sexually immoral, specifically the homosexuals in Jude 7. And that God compares the fallen angels to sexually immoral people here in Jude 7. And that homosexuality is abnormal and shameful, according to Romans chapter 1. The sexual sin is different than any other sin as it is a sin against our own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, church. Paul warning the church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. 
Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Are you, not, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And some additional verses, including but not limited to, calling out homosexuality or sexual immorality. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Revelation 21, 8. Jude 5. Leviticus 18, 22. Romans 1, 26 through 28. 1 Kings 14, 24. And 1 Kings 15, 12. Therefore, from this pulpit, Southern Baptist Convention or Southern Baptist Church Presidents J.D. Greer and Ed Litton have lied, has sinfully lied. They have sinfully slandered God, committing blasphemy against God, alleging that he only whispers about sexual sins. These men need to be removed from their pulpits. Yes, 100% of mankind has been born into sin. Yes, it is true. We are all sinners, especially me. And we all need to be saved from our sins. And all that it takes is just one little white lie to condemn this sinner into hell. It says in John 3 that we're already condemned by our sin. But the Bible does speak specifically about immorality, sexual immorality, and homosexual sins. And we must tell the truth in love. Verse 7b said these sexually immoral pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. God describes these sins as being unnatural. It says in Romans chapter 1, listen to this. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then verse 26. Remember that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie so that they can have their own sinful lifestyle. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, this is lesbianism, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. It's contrary to nature, God said. It's not normal. It's not like other sins. And the men, likewise, God gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Fast forwarding to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The church, it is wrong for us to tolerate, acquiesce to, or give approval to sexual sins. Just because we're not committing them, doesn't mean that it's not wrong. I refuse to give approval to them, nor will I normalize nor minimize their sexual sins, straight sins, or homosexual sins. Yes, all forms of sexual immorality is wicked, 
And whether they be straight heterosexual fornication in general, or adultery, or lust, or pornography, homosexuality, or sexual immorality, it is all in fact very, very demonic. These fallen angels are influencing people to commit these sins. And some of them God has already turned over to their debased mind, the scripture says. As one scholar said, In Genesis 19, angelic messengers in the form of men visited Sodom and the men of the city, motivated by their homosexuality and supposing the messengers to be men, desired them. End of quote. And church history repeats itself. The good old-fashioned, the good old depraved USA is just like Sodom and is being visited by her own angelic, angelic, demonic beings, demons, and messengers. As R.J. Rushdoony said, Jude's requirement is simple. You should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered on to the saints, as we learned last week. Continuing, the thinkers of the city of man were contemptuous then, and they are now of God's revelation. They have their own word of truth. End of quote. In closing, let us contend for the faith. Remember that word last week, epigonisma? It's a continuous command, a continuous verb. Let us call sin for what it is, especially our own sin. As James says, let a man look in the mirror and examine himself. Let us continually repent from our sins, not continually repeat our sins. Let the repents be more frequent and let the repeats be less frequent. In review, last week, in verses 1 through 4, we again we saw contending for the faith. This week, in verses 5 through 7, we saw a reminder of God's punishment, specifically the sexually immoral. And next week, in verses 8 through 13, will be a denunciation of false teachers. Lord, thank you for your strong words here. Lord, let me close in this prayer to remind us all as a church is that what your word says to the church, that God, you demonstrated your love towards us, your elect, your church, so much that Christ died for us. We thank you, Father, for sending Christ. We thank you, Christ, for being the propitiation, the expiation, and the justifier of our sins, for purchasing us with your blood. We thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you that you ascended and you're seated right now at the right hand of the Father, the Majesty, Most High God, that Jesus, you are truly God and truly man, the God-man in the flesh, and you died for us. You died for your church. You delivered us from the penalty of our sin. You paid our sin debt. We are so thankful. We are so guilty of various sins. But Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enable us to continually resist those temptations that come our way. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.